I want to take you back uh, today as we begin this uh, message on the Word of God about a thousand years before Christ. And I know it's difficult to really imagine fully what things must have been like back then because we live in such a different time, but I just want you to do your best in your mind's eye to think about what life must have been like a thousand years before Christ. It's a more primitive society, more primitive culture. They didn't have a lot of the conveniences and uh, technology, of course, and, and even just some of the modern uh, things that we have in the industrial age. Uh, life was simpler then. They didn't have as many distractions. Most of their day was spent going through uh, doing the things necessary to live, to survive, whether that was the agrarian aspect of farming and uh, tending sheep or those types of things or whatever it might be, doing uh, cooking, uh, washing, those types of Things. They didn't also, they didn't have this deluge of information like we have uh, today. Just day-to-day -day routine with duties and uh, things that they would uh, focus on each day. And yet, like all of human nature, they faced anxieties and fears and stresses. Uh, they faced uh, health concerns, right? Uh, and, and, and they faced all kinds of struggles. Uh, so much of the things that we face, we have places that we instinctively go to first. So take health struggles. You have a health struggle, what's the first thing that we do? We go to the medicine cabinet, or if it's more significant, we go to urgent care or the doctor. Right? If we have car trouble, we go to the mechanic. Right? If we have you know, problems with one of our appliances, we call the repair guy. So we have a different culture, but back in, in their day, where did they turn? Well, they turned to the Word of God. The phrase Word of God meant something to them that I think has lost a little bit of its meaning to us today. Uh, the Bible is the Word of God. And, and you've heard me say that often, that I believe the Bible is the Word of God. But I'm wondering sometimes if that hasn't become more of just a rote sort of way of saying things, kind of Christianese, the way we talk in, in churches today. In fact, I spent a number of years uh, working for a Bible software company on the side while I was doing ministry in other capacities. And I would speak often at different either conferences or in uh, academic settings as well for faculty or students. But, but a lot of times when I was at a more mainstream Christian conference and I would use the phrase God's Word, there were actually people there that didn't know what I meant. They never really had thought of the Bible as God's Word. They thought of the Bible as a book. But back in the ancient Near East, a thousand years before Christ, at the time when many of the Psalms were written, they didn't have the Bible as we know it today, but they had God's Word. And that meant something to them. It wasn't just a segment of life. It was the sum total of their life. They depended heavily on the presence and the voice of God in their lives. And so as they walked down to the, the river to wash the clothes, they trusted God to protect them from maybe predatory animals or things that might be there. Um, when Israel's kings faced 
hostile enemy nations. They truly trusted God, not all of them, but most of the good kings in Israel trusted God uh, and His Word. To them, God's Word was like a life preserver, really, that kept them from drowning in the sea of life. Um, you know, life preserver is a, a good metaphor because we, we understand if you are ever in a place where you're out in the ocean or the sea or on a lake and there's no, nobody around, you better hope you have a life preserver or you have some kind of flotation device that will help you tread water because you're not going to be able to do it forever, right? I remember one time when I was a kid, um, uh, we lived in Connecticut at the time. I was, had to be like grade school. And um, even though we lived in the Northeast where they get tons of snow, the, place, the house we lived in had a pool. And one summer my dad was uh, below the deck on, in a chase lounge just kind of taking a nap on a Saturday afternoon. And I was up on the deck, and I thought it'd be funny to get some water from the kitchen sink and drip it through the cracks in the deck and onto him. He did not think it was funny. So he came and grabbed me and he threw me into the pool. And then he continued to circle the pool. And every time I got near the edge, he pushed me back out. And I really thought I was going to drown. And I really thought I needed a life preserver. But um, I guess it worked because I never dropped water on my dad while he was sleeping again. Um, but if you've ever been in a situation, hopefully you haven't, but where you're you know, go overboard on a ship or you're out on the lake and something happens, your boat sinks, you, you know the value of a life preserver. And for those in the ancient Near East, the Word of God is all they had. And I think for us, it's a part of our natural response, but I don't think it nearly has the level of prominence that deep down we know that it should. Uh, the Word of God, the Bible, should be our go-to resource and that is so hard because instinctively we get anxious we get nervous we 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 want to solve especially men love to solve problems on their own how can I fix this you know but ultimately we have to place our confidence in uh, the Word of God Proverbs puts it this way where there's no revelation the people cast off restraint but happy is he who keeps the law. Now you'll notice the, the structure here. This is what we call in Hebrew poetry synonymous parallelism, or actually in this case it's an, 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 uh, uh, contrasting parallelism, where the first line repeats something and then you have a strong contrastive but, basically saying the same principle but from the opposite way. So no revelation, or the word revelation there is the same thing as the law. And basically what the proverb is saying is that when you don't have the word of God, there's nothing to restrain you. It's just the old King James says where there is no vision, the people perish. But the Hebrew, I think this is a better translation here in the New King James, where there's no revelation. In other words, where the revelatory word of God, which at that time came through prophets, uh, through priests, it came from God directly speaking from heaven to earth sometimes. Today it comes through the Bible. But when you don't have that, you're in a dangerous place. But by contrast, if you hear and heed the word of God, it's, you're going to be blessed. So I want you to turn to Psalm 119. If you have your Bibles, if not, I'm going to put a lot of verses on the screen. 
but we're obviously not going to look at the entire chapter, Psalm 119, but as you saw, I'm going to look at just one little section. But first, I want to kind of give you a little bit of background. When we introduced the series on Psalms several weeks ago, I talked about how some Psalms are structured as what we call acrostics, and an acrostic is, is where you've got 22 what we might call stanzas in Hebrew poetry they're called strophes but each verse in each strophe or stanza starts with the same letter of the alphabet so there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet and so for example the first section of Psalm 119 verses 1 through 8 in our English Bibles each line begins with the first Hebrew letter an Aleph then the next eight verses verses 9 to 16 each verse in that section starts with the second letter of the alphabet. So it would be like if we wrote a poem and every line began with A, then in the next section every line in our poem began with B and then C. And, and that's what this is with the Hebrew uh, poetry. There are only 22 letters in the Hebrew poetry. And if you have a good English translation, you may notice at the heading of, this, of each section in Psalm 119, it lists the Hebrew uh, letter. And uh, so it starts out with, an olive, and then a bait, and a gimel, and a dollar, and a gimel, and so forth. So, uh, this is an anonymous psalm. We don't know who wrote it, but we know they were seeking refuge from persecution, and very clearly, very powerfully, very strongly, in 176 verses, they reiterate the fact that they found comfort in God's word. They found comfort in God's word. This chapter of Psalms, the longest chapter in the Bible, is also noted for how many times it refers to the Bible using 10 different Hebrew words. And there are 176 verses in this chapter of Psalms, and all but three of them make reference to the Bible, to, to what we call the Bible, the Word of God. So you've got the law used 25 times, judgment 22 times, testimony, commandments, precepts, statutes, the word, the word or saying. It's actually a different Hebrew word, but though sometimes translated the same way as word. And then way, and then the way or uh, the path. And each one of these has a little bit different nuance, but it's all speaking essentially of the same thing. God's word, God's truth, the message of God. So I want to just read these uh, eight verses here. And this is in uh, the section uh, that is uh, in the acrostic, the noon, the, what we would call a letter N. And it says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We just sung about that. I have sworn and committed or confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgments. I am afflicted very much. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Accept, I pray, the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your judgments. My life is continually in my hand, literally continually in danger. Yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not strayed from your precepts. Your testimonies I have taken as a heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever to the very end. Think about those last th four words there at the end of verse 112. To the very end. Oh, that we could get to the place in our Christian walk 
where we would say, I'm going to hang on to the Word of God, make it the guiding principle of my life to the very end. We were talking at the break about how some Christians are, are shipwrecked in their, in their journey, their Christian journey. For whatever reason, they turn their back on the Lord. They have some crisis or tragedy that makes them bitter and they get away from the Lord. And before long, they've drifted too far and they're really not where they need to be in their walk with the Lord. Um, the Bible talks about that. It's called backsliding. And there are many ways that it can happen, but fundamentally it, gets, it happens when you get away from the Word of God. So in the immediate context, again, this is the, the 14th stanza with the Hebrew letter Nun, and it's talking about how God's Word illumines our way. It helps us to know His will. And indeed, the Scripture gives us all the information we need, Peter would later tell us, for life and godliness, and all the information we need to determine God's will. As Jeff prayed at the beginning of the service today, or talked about in the service today, you know, we want to know God's will. And you cannot do that if you're going to separate yourself from the Word of God. Uh, you'd be like a straw blowing in the wind, right? And the psalmist here in this immediate context had called on God to help him while meditating on his Word. The first four verses of this stanza, he's talking about how he's focusing and meditating on the Word of God. And then he says he's going to continue to follow it forever because he knows how valuable it can be and how helpful it can be in navigating the waters of life. It really is like a life preserver. Reminds me of what David said in uh, the 23rd Psalm, which we looked at the beginning of this series on selected psalms. But remember, at the end of Psalm 23, he says, So I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In other words, in light of God being my shepherd, in light of God's guidance, in light of God's protection, I'm going to stay close to him. And this writer here, whoever it may be, was kind of expressing the same thought. God's word is my, my refuge, my strength. And so I'm going to you know, incline my heart to it forever to the very end. So I just want to give you four reasons to trust God's word this morning. We've talked a lot about trust and trusting God and faith. We talked about it all through the book of Hebrews. Um, and it's a frequent theme in, uh, in my teaching, in my life, because it's something that it means so much to me. Because I've been so many times when I drift away from the Lord and I'm doubting and questioning and anxious. And the Lord always pulls me back to trusting Him. So this hopefully is not going to be anything new or profound to some of you who've studied God's Word for many years. But it'll be a reminder that God's Word can be trusted. And the first reason is because it's inspired. God's Word is inspired. We get this from 2 Timothy chapter 3. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's an interesting word in Greek. It's the only place this word is ever used. And Paul was uh, very well known for kind of coining phrases in Greek, obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he wrote. We call that uh, theologisms, where you make up a, uh, neologisms rather, where you make up a new word. Uh, but this is the only place it's used, and it's a compound word, theos, God, neustos, breath, or breathe. So it's God breathed. And essentially what he's saying is that, in fact, one translation, the NIV, actually translates uh, this word as God breathed. And so we translate it in most translations as inspired because that's what it means. The Word of God is literally the breath of God, the Word uh, of God. We know from Second Peter that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation because prophecy never came about by the will of man, 
but men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That word moved is an interesting word. It's the Greek word pharaoh. It means to guide or direct or lead. Very common in the New Testament, used 64 times, but the way it's translated kind of helps us understand why God describes the writing of Scripture as being from those who were guided or led by the Holy Spirit. For example, in Acts chapter 12, when Peter and an angel are leaving prison after he got out of the jail and he's headed to John Mark's mother's house where the church was praying for him. Remember that story? Rhoda answers the door and doesn't says, hey, Peter's here. Nobody believes her. I mean, there's a, quite a lesson there. You're praying, Lord, please rescue Peter from jail. And Rhoda says, oh, hey, guys, he's here. No, don't, don't disturb us. We're praying for God to rescue Peter, you know. Uh, but anyway, notice what Luke says. When they were past, this is Peter and the angel, when they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city. Pharaoh, it's that same word. So that gate takes you somewhere. You know, it showed you the way. Or in Acts 27, with the uh, Paul on the uh, ship, and he says, when they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, and fearing lest they should run aground on Sardis, they struck sail and so were driven. That last three words is just that one word in Greek, pharaoh, to carry along. In other words, the way the wind caught the sails and carried the ship along is the way the Holy Spirit carried the writers of Scripture along so that what we have is the very word of God. They were led, carried along, right where God wanted them to be. And so the words that we have in our Bible today are the ones that God put there, right? In Hebrews, we read that the word of God is living and powerful. It's the only book, Howard Hendricks used to say, one of my professors uh, who's with the Lord now, but he, he used to say, it's the only book on the planet that when you read the Bible, it's doing something to you. Any other book, you're doing something to it. But you read the Bible, it's doing something to you. Why? Because it's alive. It's the living, written Word of God. Notice back to 2 Timothy 3 when Paul says all Scripture is God-breathed or given by inspiration. That word Scripture is the Greek word graphe. It's where we get our English word graffiti. So graffiti is a cognate of the Greek word graphe. And it's used 51 times in, in the New Testament. And every time it's translated Scripture. And it, it reminds us that when he says all Scripture is given by inspiration, he's talking about the written Word of God. That's the doctrine of inspiration. It's not the ideas or the concepts that are inspired. It's the very words on the page. When the quill hit the sheepskin under the inspiration of the Spirit, we can count on the fact that God's Word is inspired. And we can trust God's Word because it's inspired. And that's what we really mean when we say God's Word. So we've become much more academic today, 2,000 years into the church age. We, we, we say God's Word as a synonym for the Bible. And most people, when they hear the word Bible, they think leather-bound pages. They, they think maybe of study Bibles, or they might think of the, the great resource that our church supplies to the pastors in Peru through the mission that Fred's involved with there, where we give them this outstanding uh, study Bible. But let's, not, let's never forget that the Bible is more than a physical thing. It's the Word of God. And the Word of God is sharp and like a two-edged sword. But secondly, we can trust the Bible because it is inerrant. And this flows right from the first one. 
because the Bible is inspired by God, God breathed, that means by de definition that it is errorless. It contains no errors because God is perfect. God cannot make a mistake. And so if we look at a few passages from Psalm 119, you know, we read that one strophe, but there are several other references that remind us of the inerrancy of God's word. For example, verse 160 says, the entirety of your word is truth. You know, I, 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 no other writer can say that, right? Um, you know, I like to write. I've got nine books so far, working on a tenth, and I can't say that the entirety of my books is truth. In fact, I can guarantee you it's not. There are mistakes in there. Uh, in fact, in my book, What Lies Ahead, uh, my eschatology book, you know, in our Sunday school hour, we're talking about the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. Well, a couple of years ago, one of my students sent me an email that pointed out a, a very embarrassing typo uh, in my book where at one point, uh, and the editor didn't catch it because it was correctly spelled, but in, in referring to the bowl judgments, I actually referred to the bowel judgments and added an E. <laughs> and that's something entirely different, right? I mean, that book's on how to survive to the rapture. The, the one on the bowel judgments is how to survive after Taco Bell. But anyway, that's another... <laughs> Totally another book. So I can't say that the entirety of my word is truth. But God's word is. Verse 140, your word is very pure. Therefore, your servant loves it. Oh, oh I know, O oh Lord, that your judgments are right. And that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. So again, it's the only book that we can say your judgments are right. And of course truth that we base on the principles of God's word, we can say is absolute. We believe in absolute truth, but we, we, ought, we believe it emanates from God's word, the Bible. Verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. We can't say that in anything we do. As we study the word and we write and so forth, we constantly, you know, uh, revise, right? Theologians never change their view. They just revise it, right? That's what they say. Or what about this, verse 120? All your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. Now that's pretty powerful. Proverbs says every word of God is pure. And this is the inerrancy of God's word. So if you think about the principle of inspiration that we looked at a second ago, what we find is we have two living revelations today of the word of God. First of all, there's the living incarnate word, Jesus Christ. John says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, right? That's the living incarnate word, Jesus Christ. But you also have the living written word of God. And they kind of have some correlation. See, in the living incarnate word, Jesus Christ, you have human parents with the Holy Spirit overshadowing. Remember, uh, Mary didn't conceive through normal means. If she had, Jesus would have been sinful because sin is passed down through the blood, Romans 5.12. But she was conceived through the Holy Spirit, and the result was a sinless Savior. Similarly, the living written Word of God, the Bible, has human authors and the Holy Spirit carrying men along so that the result is a scripture without error. So I always like to remind people that the, the, the divine nature of the Bible is connected to the divinity of our Savior, the deity of Christ. And if we say the Bible contains errors, then that's tantamount to saying we have a sinful Savior. 
because it's the same Holy Spirit involved in both cases. So we can trust God's Word because it's inerrant. Inspiration inevitably requires inerrancy because the Holy Spirit's involved. But number three, we can trust God's Word because it's indestructible. It's indestructible. Again, going back to verse 160, we looked at a moment ago. Notice, every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Or verse 152, you have founded them, what? Forever. Or verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Or verse 144, the righteousness of your testimonies is everlasting. The indestructibility of God's word. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in a separate context, makes a very interesting statement about the Word of God, which in his day was the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. He said, Assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by any means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Now, many of you may know what a jot and a tittle is. The original listeners on the hillside that day would have understood perfectly because it relates to the Hebrew language. A jot is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So if we look up the word Yahweh, this is the Hebrew word Yahweh, the personal name for God. We talked about it a few weeks ago. Uh, that first letter is a yod, and that's a jot. That's what Jesus was referring to, the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Well, what's a tittle? Uh, well, let's look at the word ahav. This is the Hebrew word for love, ahav. A tittle is the smallest stroke of a pen that differentiates one letter from another. In fact, some paraphrases of that verse in Matthew 5.18 say, uh, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen. Well, that's correct that that's what Jesus is referring to, but he actually said not one jot or tittle. You just have to know what those are. And a tittle would be like this little spot right here that comes off the end that differentiates this letter in Hebrew is, is a bait. And if you didn't have that little part sticking off of the end at the bottom right there, then it becomes a kof, totally different letter. So every stroke of the pen is critical in God's Word, and it's indestructible. And we ought to understand the significance of that, because uh, in English, uh, we, we kind of have a similar thing. So if I were to put this uh, letter, and I'll tell you it's a letter, not a number, what letter would that be? Someone says an L, right? Could be a lowercase l, or an I, right? But what if I put that stroke of a pen with it. Now what letter is it? Right. And what if I added that stroke of a pen? You see my point? It really makes the difference, which is why studying the Bible in its literal, grammatical, historical understanding and recognizing that it wasn't written in English and sometimes it's helpful to know a little bit of background about the language and the syntax because every single stroke of a pen matters. And, and to illustrate that point, let's uh, put this word on the screen. Uh, the word F-A-T, or fat. Well, watch how with one stroke of a pen, I can change this word. Now what is it? Fat, right? Totally different word. I add another stroke of a pen. Now what is it? Right. Totally different word. I can add another stroke of a pen. Now what have we got? Fat. See, every stroke of the pen matters. Every letter matters. The Bible is indestructible. Peter put it this way, the word of God lives and abides forever. The word of the Lord endures forever. He's quoting from the prophet Isaiah there in Isaiah 40. But this is what we call the doctrine of preservation. 
If God supernaturally revealed himself to mankind through the pen of the human authors using inspiration, God breathed, then doesn't it make sense that he would preserve the record of that revelation? What good is God's revelation to mankind if it could disintegrate and disappear? Right? So we can trust God's word because it is indestructible. You know, we have other writings from around the same time period as the New Testament, uh, such as Tacitus or Thucydides or Euripides, Herodotus, but, but we only have a handful. Like we have two surviving manuscripts of Tacitus and eight of Thucydides, eight of Herodotus, nine of Euripides. But we have six to 7,000 surviving manuscripts of the New Testament that date from as early as the second century all the way up through ninth, 10th, and they're finding more all the time. Why? Because the Bible is indestructible. And it's unlike any other book ever written. I memorized a poem years ago that, that always touches my heart when I think about it. But it goes like this, I stood beside the blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vespers chime. And looking in upon the floor, I saw old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all those hammers so? Ah, just one, said he. Tis the anvil that wears the hammers out, you know. And so I thought of the anvil of God's word. Though for centuries critics' blows have rained upon, the anvil still remains. Tis the hammers that are gone. And through the centuries, people have ridiculed God's word. They've criticized God's word. They've mocked those who preach God's word. But guess what's still here? God's word. And it will be until Christ comes back. And then it'll be with us incarnate. Well, finally, it's also important to trust God's word because it's influential. And that's really what it's all about. Notice the verse we've looked at already and we sung about. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to my path. There's, it has an impact. I mean, even if we didn't have the teaching of God's word about its very nature and inspiration, we know from practical experience that blessed are those who keep his testimonies, as verse 2 tells us. Or verse 9, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Or, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you, verse 11. See how it's influential, it's impactive, it makes a difference in our life? Verse 28, my soul melts from heaviness. We talked about this two weeks ago in Psalm 13, that just the depression and the, the, sometimes the life can really throw us for a curve. But we look up to heaven and we say, strengthen me through your word. I love this one in verse 100, I understand more than the ancients because of your precepts. You know, there's certainly it's certainly true, and the Bible speaks to this in Proverbs, that there is wisdom that comes with age and experience. So humanly speaking, you can learn from wisdom of counsel and wisdom of others. But it's also true that sometimes the older and more experienced are not always the best counselor. Because God's word trumps all else when it comes to counselors. And so that's why he can say, you know, I have more understanding than these wise old people who've seen a lot in life. You know why? Because I'm tethered to the word of God. That's, that's what he's saying there. He says uh, it this way in 104, 
through your precepts I get understanding. So we've got to see the world through the lens of Scripture because it's the Word of God that is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Notice what uh, the writer of Hebrews says here that the Word of God is like a two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit like joints and marrow. In other words, soul and spirit there, that which longs for God from that which longs for the flesh, humanly speaking. Sometimes those two things are so closely intertwined it's hard to tell the difference. You know, is this me wanting this? Is this God directing me here, the spirit? And, and like joints and marrow can sometimes be so intertwined in our bones that it's hard to tell the difference. Well, the same thing's true with our thoughts and our desires and the writer here says that the Word of God can cut like a surgical knife and discern between the two. Uh, Paul, going back to 2 Timothy 3, says that all Scripture is profitable. What does that mean? It's useful. Well, how is it useful? It's useful in four ways. I think we've talked about this before, but it's profitable for doctrine. In other words, it tells us what to believe, right? Doctrine. It's also profitable for reproof. In other words, it tells us what not to believe. Those are two pretty important things. What should I believe? What should I not believe? In this age of intensifying deception, what the Bible calls the great last days deception, uh, where Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.13, deception is getting worse and worse. We need to know what should we believe, what should we not believe. God's word helps us do that. But it goes on to say it's profitable for correction. In other words, it tells us what not to do. <laughs> what should I, how should I not behave? And it's profitable for instruction in righteousness. In other words, it tells us what to do. So you kind of see this chiasm there. We, the, according to the Bible, we can find what to believe, what not to believe, how to behave, and how not to behave. And when you boil it all down, what else do you need in life, right? That's it. Because our actions stem from our beliefs. So there are certain things the Bible says, you really shouldn't do that. It's not going to go well if you do. Other things, the Bible says, you know, you really should do this. This is something that believers should do. And we know those things because of the Bible. So we can uh, trust God's Word because it is influential. It has, makes a difference in our uh, lives. So there's four reasons, four good reasons. Uh, and I think the, the writer of Psalm 119 really had a passion and a love for God's Word because of this. It wasn't the same Bible that we hold in our hands today. There were some Old Testament scriptures by that time, but uh, he knew he understood the value of the Word of God, that it was reliable because it was God's very Word, that it was indestructible, and that it made a difference. So here's the takeaway. I would just remind us all to set our minds on the Word of God, on the Word of God. If you're not spending time uh, in the Word of God, you need to do that. You need to stay in the Word. That's how we're going to be able to stand firm. You know, the casualties of the Christian faith are those who aren't well-versed in Scripture. Remember what we read in verse 11, you know, that thy word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against thee, right? When we have the word up here, you know, it's there when we, when we want it, you know. Uh, as we've been looking at houses, you know, one of the things we're looking for is, the, what's the kitchen like? Does it have a lot of cupboards where we can put groceries and things that we need, pots, pans, utensils, whatever. Why? Because you get ready to cook, you want to be able to go right there and grab it and put it together and do it. You don't want to have to wonder, where, where is it, right? 
So you go to the grocery store, you come home, you put stuff in the cupboards right where you know, here's the sugar, here's the salt. In our house, you can never find the salt because there's too many people. They don't know where to put stuff back where they found it. But anyway, normally you just go right where the stuff is and you find it, right? And that's what Psalm 119.11 is saying, that when we hide the word of God in our heart, it's there when we need it. And so when we face life's struggles or decision points or whatever, we can just go right there and grab it. And the Spirit of God will bring to our remembrance those things that we've studied in God's Word. Well, let's close in prayer, and then we'll uh, have the Lord's Supper, which we do every third Sunday here at Plum Creek Chapel. And what a great way to end our service, as we've talked about the living incarnate Word and the living written Word. And as we remember the Lord's sacrifice, uh, we kind of think about both of those aspects. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, your word today. Lord, thank you for the reminder that we all need ever so often of the value of your word. Help us to uh, just really saturate ourselves with your word, knowing that it's really doing something to us when we study and read it. And Father, I pray today if there's one here that uh, doesn't know you as their personal Savior, that they would recognize that they are a sinner who needs a Savior, and that only uh, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ can they uh, make satisfactory payment for their sin, and they can only receive that payment by faith. And I pray that in simple faith, anyone who doesn't know you would today trust in Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior, for eternal life. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.